So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand right now. We want to give one right to you. And if not, open up your apps or your Bibles or whatever the case to Matthew chapter 21. You're probably aware of the fact we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the word of God. It keeps us from spending too much time on a subject that isn't there. And it keeps us from avoiding texts uh, that are there. We pick it up in verse 18. So we're in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Go ahead and get there. (coughs) Read with me starting in verse 18. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Jesus answered and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Oh boy. And this is why we aren't going farther than that. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask for you to have your perfect will done here. We pray, God, that you would do something so profound, so beautiful, so rich, so meaningful to each of us, so sublime that, God, we recognize our encounter with you in your word. And, Lord, as we take this time to open your word for the next 45 minutes, Lord, radically speak to us individually as we need to hear you and corporately as a family. God, that we would today hear, hear your voice and we would get it. We would get it. Captivate us in your word. Let your word burst open and come alive. And let, Lord, today be the best Sunday we've ever lived. Well, we didn't encounter you just with some form of emotion or experience, but Lord, in truth. So we commit this time, we deem every second. And if there be any who have yet to say yes to you as their Lord and Savior, let this be the day of their salvation. We commit this day to you. And we pray, Lord, you would have your way now. So here we are with yours. Immerse me in your spirit, God. Come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And God, overcome every language barrier. Overcome every cultural barrier. Overcome any barrier and every barrier till it's just us and you you where we belong. So we commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Now, there's always going to be some fancy guys out there with fancy mics speaking fancy terms and swaying. The Bible promises that. But we're told to test all things. Uh, That includes what I say today. So let's put things into context as we dive into this text. It was just two days ago that it was a Sunday that Jesus entered into the town of, or the city of Jerusalem. That puts us at Jesus' last week. Awaiting him on Friday is his execution, his murder. 
If we take Sir Richard Anderson's math, that's one of the uh, heads of uh, chief inspectors of Scotland Yard over 100 years ago who did the math from the promise in Daniel 9, from the going and coming forth of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince. And he gives us the specific time that puts us now, at least as we start to look at this, the day that he enters in is the 6th of April, 32 A.D., Now, on that Sunday, according to the four Gospels, what we see is Jesus entered into the town. He was crying, according to the Gospel of Luke, because he sees the people refusing and rejecting him and their inevitable downfall as a result of it. That's a rough place to start. But then we read that the hour was late in Mark. And it's because the hour was late, then Jesus just returned to Bethany. Now, he had borrowed some donkeys from Bethany. He had been coming from a town called Bethphage. Bethphage, by the way, means house of figs. Two cities that are on the top of the Mount of Olives that's on the east side beyond the valley that surrounds Jerusalem. The Mount of Bethphage or the town of Bethphage was a town you could see from Jerusalem. And certainly you have a very beautiful vantage point there to see the entirety of Jerusalem from it. It is a place, by the way, where they had the second seat to the Sanhedrin. In other words, the ruling council for all of the Jewish practices were done there because things like that were done at city gates. And they took that place to be the gate of their city. Now, over the hill, behind it, if you will, is the town of Bethany where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live. We can assume that Jesus spent the night there. And why would you want to spend it in Jerusalem when they want to kill you when your friends just live less than two miles away? So that was Sunday. Sunday, Jesus borrows some donkeys from Bethany. He comes down from the house of figs. He enters in weeping, looks around, comes back, drops off the donkeys, if you will, and then spends the night in Bethany. That was our Sunday. Monday now, Jesus shows up on Monday, and it is according to the Gospel of Mark, we makes clear, and of course here in Matthew, that he goes and he cleans out the temple. And that is really, really important to recognize that Jesus didn't sort of show up, get surprised, see how horrible things were in the temple, and then freak out, turn into the Hulk, rip his shirt off, and then just start beating everyone by the neck and ankle. What we read instead is that it was a very calculated act of obedience from Jesus, that he saw everything on Sunday, but comes back on Monday to clean house. And when he does, we do read that he drive out, ekbalo, literally threw them out. And as he threw them out on Monday, those that were selling, the marketers and the, the merchants and those that were, you know, that were shopping, the shoppers and the sellers, as he kicks them all out, we don't read that Jesus freaked out because if he had freaked out, we wouldn't read the next thing we read in the Gospel of Matthew, which tells us that then the lame and the blind came to him and he healed him. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I see somebody freak out, I tend not to think, wow, when he simmers down just for a second, I'm going to go over and ask him for something. But nonetheless, Jesus had driven out the merchants and the sellers I'm sorry, the merchants and the buyers. And he drives them all out so that the the house that is his house can become the house of prayer he intended. That was Monday. So on Monday, at the end of that, Jesus performs these great healings, these healings on the blind and on the lame. And then back to Bethany he goes. And now it takes us to Tuesday. 
And I'll be honest with you, there are certain texts that you read in Scripture like this. You kind of almost, if you're anything like me, you kind of hop on it, kind of say, okay, he cursed the fig tree, that's kind of weird, and then shriveled, duh, he cursed it. You know, and, and then we just, let's get into the rest of the text, because there's going to be fun and confrontation, and Jesus is going to shut them down and be like, yeah, in your face, you know, but in a much more godly way. And, and so there's these cool things we're expecting, and we read right past this text, and the Lord's going, whoa, 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 stop and read this. And I'm like, this is a really weird text. Because Jesus got up, he's hungry, he looks at a tree, the tree isn't giving him anything, and he's like, you're done! And the tree shrivels up and dies, and then he goes and he tells the guys, hey, if you just had faith, you could cast mountains into the sea. And what part of us thinks, oh, this is my favorite life verse? So I look at this and I'm like, what, is he, what in the world is he doing? But what if we crawled into this situation for a moment and we understood what God was pointing us to? He didn't even have to tell us it was a tree. He didn't have to tell us, it was certainly enough to tell us it was a fig tree, but he did. He didn't have to tell us that there was no fruit on it, but he did. And then he, did, he didn't just tell us there was no fruit on it, but according to this text, he tells us it was only leaves. Do you see that? I'm under the impression that God doesn't get paid by the word. He only gives us what we need. So I'm looking at this text, and what if we were one of these 12 with him? Well, 11, 12, Jesus kind of left because at the Passover, well, we're about to have soon, he's going to go and betray Jesus. So there's 12 of us. There's a traitor amidst us. We're all going to betray him and leave him as he gets arrested. And we're kind of watching him and he gets up somewhere in all of this. We imagine in Bethany, we're there with Lazarus and his sisters. And at this point now, Jesus walks out and he sees this tree from afar and he approaches it. My natural impression, of course, from this is, wow, Jesus gets hangry. You know, he's kind of hungry in the morning and he's grumpy. And then we naturally use it as some form of kind of catapult to say, well, look, at I'm grumpy. It's that whatever reason for it. Jesus got grumpy. Look at what he did to this tree. Is that really what's going on here? So kind of walk with me for a moment on this. Jesus had taken the trip down from Galilee to Jerusalem which, of course, he just finished, if you will, on Sunday. During that time, we have that most document in the Gospel of Luke, from 952 to through the middle of chapter 19. That whole section is Jesus' walk down from Galilee down into Jerusalem. It ends, of course, with the triumphal entry that we saw. During that particular time, Jesus actually tells us a parable. And if you would, if you have your, your Bibles, prayerfully you do, flip them two books over to the book of Luke, chapter 13, please. Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time speaking about fruit trees, specifically that of fig trees, but he does give us this in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 6. tells us this. A certain man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come down seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it? Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and he said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit, well, good. But if not, well, then after that you can cut it down. Jesus has told us that. We're his disciples and we're walking with them. That story is resonating in our ears. 
But let me ask you this. In your life and in my life, we have things that kind of trigger memories. Some memories are really great memories, to which we refer to at times that are really rough. They bring us comfort. It could be a song. It could be a smell. It could be a screensaver. We also have memories that we would rather not be reminded of. In those rough moments, if you will, well, that's got to be rough too, and certainly... Certain smells or sounds or songs or sights will bring us back to that moment for a moment. You know, she looked and said, it's not you, it's me. I just want to be friends. And that song forever will now be damaged. It was our song. Now it's a horrible song. But imagine being God. Think about the memories God has. First of all, they're infinite. I mean, he can recall, God knowing everything, he could recall at any given moment all of the history prior, which is infinite. And then being able to recall things like creation when the angels sing, according to Job. So I wonder what song the angels sing that reminds God of creating things. How wild of a thought is that? Imagine what it would be like for him to refer back to making light with two words. Baror. Literally just light be. And it was. Stretching out and creating the universe with a couple words. Looking at it going, Tov. Good. This is good. But none of those are his masterpiece. And then God becomes... Anthropomorphic, it becomes man or something that has hands to form man. We're only in Genesis 2 at this point, Genesis 2 7, and he forms man. Everything else he spoke and said, and there it was, but for the first time, God didn't speak it. He just got down and started scrubbing and shaping and molding himself. And we read that man still wasn't alive yet, but he formed him. So he's taking Ezra and he's scooping him up and shoving things and putting it on in place. He's like, hmm, you know, a little bit more there. And then it says that God breathed into him the breath of life and Adam became a living being, which tells us there's another very unique thing about this creation that he did here, that he wasn't alive until God made contact with him. We don't read that about any other creation. You are so unique, beloved. So unique. And Adam's eyes are open. And imagine you trying to process all of that information at one time. And I think about it a lot from Adam's perspective. Because the first thing I recognize is, whoever you are, you gave me life. But I don't think I think enough about what it would be like for God to remember that memory. What would that be like for God? Because, see, God knows what's going to happen. And part of it is he's excited. That's the way I see it, at least. That he's kind of shaping this guy. He's like, it's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so good because I want to breathe life. And we're going to be like buds, man. We're going to be like, yeah. We're like, yeah, man. We're hanging out. So, you know, he's breathing. He breathes into him. And Adam's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's this? And he's like, hi. And if you read this, and I challenge you, remember, don't just believe me. But in Genesis 2, verse 7, and then in verse 8, Seven, he makes man. In verse 8, he says, then God planted a garden. Wait a minute. I always see it as God made the garden, then he made man in the middle of it. But according to this, it says that God planted a garden after he made man. 
And he made every tree grow that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. But now imagine this. So God's like, hey, come here with me. And he goes, I watch this. And he makes this tree grow. He goes, what do you think? And he's like, beautiful. And he goes, try this. Now, do you even know that you have taste buds? Does he even know any of that? And he's like, eat this. And you're like, what does that mean? And imagine, this is God talking to man. Men eating is something God gave us as a blessing. Just want to make that clear. So, you know, he's like, try this. And imagine, so he shoves this fruit in his mouth. And he's like, oh, this is good. The guy goes, glad you like it. Well, watch this. And he makes another one. Can you see the excitement of a father at a moment like that, making something beautiful and going, I can't wait for him to try this one. Now, how many of these does he have to do before we catch on? I think by the third one, I kind of got it. You make it, it's beautiful. I'm going to stick my face in it and have some fun. And I'm going to enjoy it. This is the relationship between God and man. This is it. Of all the trees that God made, of all the fruit trees that God made, what is the one fruit that we know was in that garden? Figs. You're right. It's the only one that we know. People talk about, well, Adam ate the apple. We don't have it written that way. We eat it as a fruit. Now, I mean, some people make it look like a grenade. I don't know. That's, there's probably something to that, too. But consider this for a moment. The one, the one fruit that we know was in the garden was the fig. Somewhere in all of these trees that he made, Adam sunk his face into a fig. And he was like, mm, this is great. And there's some really cool and unique and beautiful things about figs, but I'd like you to think, what would it be like for God to to think back on that memory for a moment? Back in the garden, when it was just, if you will, man was having a honeymoon with God. And after God made man, he's like, you know what I'm going to do? Tomorrow, I'm taking the day off. Let's just hang out. Just you and me. Could you imagine? This is God that made man to praise him, that made man to serve him. No, it's this God who made man to be with him. He's like, hey, let's hang out. What are we going to do? I'll make more cool stuff. You can eat it. What an amazing relationship. And imagine what it would be like for that memory. What would trigger that memory to God? But then... Somewhere in that, because God knows love isn't love without a choice. He gives him a choice, and in that choice, he chooses away from God. And the first thing that we read is that his eyes were open, he and his wives, and they made underwear. Isn't that the weirdest thing? The first thing that man makes is underwear? Is that the strangest thought? And what's even weirder is he made it out of these. I just want to give you one of these for a moment. Just pass it around. Feel it. Because I want you to get this is like a 3D experience. 4D. You know. And, and just, just think, what would it be like to make a pair of boxers out of that? Not much of a material. I'm kind of into something smooth and not abrasive. Yeah. Chafing, not into chafing. And God now looking, and what is God looking at at this moment? He's looking at a leaf. He's not looking at fruit anymore. He's looking at a leaf. He's looking at a leaf that's hiding something, and God says, Hey, what are you doing? 
God walking in the cool of the garden and saying, Adam, where are you? It isn't like God doesn't know. Adam doesn't realize. He's like, Adam, do you even know where you are? What are you doing? Is there any part of you this, that this makes sense to? Is there any part of you that thinks you really need to hide from me? What part of our relationship tells you that you should be hiding from me right now? And to look at that leaf and realize that was the hiding. That was the cover-up. And I wonder if this is what Jesus saw when he was walking on this morning. And he saw this tree. Now, if it really is at this point now the 8th of April, it is early for figs. As a matter of fact, I don't know how much... I I did some studying because I'm a city boy. I don't know much about farming. I can ask other people probably know infinitely more about it than I do. But I have learned some interesting things about figs. One thing I learned, by the way, is that the flowers grow inside the fruit. Do you know that? I mean, there's a lot of things you see that bloom and you go, there's going to be a great harvest. Check it out. But this one, it actually, like the cocoons, these, well, I'm sure that's not the term, but that's what I'm using for the moment, that the flower actually grows inside it and the fruit grows around it. That's a really interesting thing. This is a bulb. Thank you. Um, but this is a fruit, actually, because you pull it right off the tree this way. Now, interesting, by the way, these things take a long time to sit through. As a matter of fact, what happens is in the winter, when they're small enough, they grow at the end because you usually pick them basically right about the time of like August, September, about the time that we're at now. The ones that haven't blossomed yet, you let them sit if they're really small and they'll endure the entire winter. And then they'll actually germinate in the spring. It's kind of a really cool thing. And the reason I say that is it isn't like these things kind of pop out of nowhere. They sit for months before they actually become the fruit you eat. And I think that's interesting. Keep that in mind for a moment. But then also there's this, that when you grow figs, the purpose is not to grow them, to grow lots and lots and lots of them. It is not about how many you grow. It's actually about how sweet they grow. And that takes a lot more attention. And I'm learning that there's an awful lot that it takes for this. For instance, you can put too much living water on it, and what will happen is they'll explode. And when they explode, by the way, they become, they com- become p- completely wasted, as you might imagine. Or... They have to have a deep root system, but if the, de- if the root system is deep but there's not enough water, it becomes bitter. And neither of those, neither of those do you want, bitter fruit, or that just explodes all over the place. But if I were there and I was coming in April, I would see the little bulbs. I would see these little pieces of fruit to know that this tree was going to be fruitful. Now, I, may, I know I won't be picking them for several months, but I want you to look at the text again back here because he tells us that he came and when he saw the tree, he only saw what on it? Leaves. There weren't even these. There wasn't even a promise of fruit. It wasn't like he saw leaves and a bunch of things that just hadn't matured yet, hadn't ripened. All there was was leaves. I think that's a really interesting thing for Jesus to look at. All he saw were the leaves. And I can't help but think of what that brought him back to. The cover-up. But no promise of fruit whatsoever. No, no, don't miss this. I'm going to have you turn to one more text, if you would, with me. Because there's something that really hit me as I was looking through the, the, through the prophets in regards to this situation. And that's in the book of Jeremiah. If you can find the book of Jeremiah, if you're kind of new to the Bible, you close it up, you open in the middle, you'll probably find Psalms. And once you go to the Psalms, you go to the right 
you'll actually be able to go from Psalms to Isaiah and then to Jeremiah. These are the larger books. And we're going to turn for a moment to Jeremiah 24. Some of you are like, well, this is just easy. I can just scroll and find it. But either way, I'll tell you what time it is now. We are now, well, we're, we're almost 600 years before. It's 580 B.C. Jerusalem has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. And the majority of the people were taken captive and brought then 900 miles east to Babylon. But there is a remnant that remains in, Israel, in Jerusalem at this time. But of that remnant, by the way, is Jeremiah. And the Lord continues to speak to him at this moment. And this is what we read in verse 1. Look at it with me. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away captive Yekonia, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and he had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. The other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Jeremiah. And I said, well, figs, good figs, very good. The bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for my own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord and that they shall be my people and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as for the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely thus says the Lord, so I will give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into the kingdoms of the earth. For their harm, to be the reproach and a byword and a taunt and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send a sword, the famine, the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I give them and their fathers. Now, let me ask you something. According to this text, what are figs? They're people. That's the most amazing part of this. He compares two baskets of figs to two groups of people. In one case, there was a group that really have suffered. They were taken captive. But as they were taken captive, they were juicy and beautiful and rich. They were sweet, interestingly enough. And he looks and he goes, these are really good. But then there was another group. They somehow escaped all of that and they just lived a life, strangely enough, even with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, still had some form of comfort, some creature comforts, and never really saw that much change. And they became not just bad, but as Jeremiah puts it, so bad. 
And I can't help but think of this as I look at this and I think there were two baskets. And I get this because you'd pick the good figs and, of course, you'd pick those and, and, and you'd want to plant good figs. You want to plant sweet figs because those are the kind of trees you want. But then at the end of it all, you would pick up the nasty ones because you don't want those taking root and becoming bad, nasty trees around you. And, and I get the idea that one of them, of course, is going to be sent off and one of them is going to be used. And I look at this and I can't help but think, well, when I look at this, I think that this is like us. But there was a tree that God had planted in a vineyard, which, by the way, according to Isaiah, tells us that the vineyard of the Lord is Jerusalem. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he sees that the tree that is there right now is producing very, very bad figs, or actually no figs at all. All it's producing is leaves. Now, think about how weird this would be for Jesus. God in the flesh. He had to experience some new things coming to earth. Being hungry is one of them. We know that he's been hungry before because he was tempted in the wilderness. And I wonder if that brought him back to the time after Adam fell. Because the first place they would go was the wilderness. And here again, he's hungry. He would be weary. We know that from John 4 when he sits at the well and a woman shows up from Samaria. Well, he's in a Samaritan town. In Sichar. He would be thirsty. Because on the cross, he would cry, I thirst. Hey, those are new things for God. Except this. I think God was hungry way before all of that. He just wasn't hungry for figs. What he was hungry for was you. It was me. That's what he was hungry for. And still what he's hungry for. Now, it's interesting. Because in Jerusalem, the very place that in three different places in Isaiah alone, he tells us, like 60 verse 3, that he tells us that the the whole point of Judaism was to be a light to the Gentiles so the whole world would come and know that there's a God who loves them and wants them. That's the tree. The tree was a tree of empty religion that produced no fruit. But what it produced, well, it produced fig leaves. You can see what God would think of that. But then consider this. Isn't that every religion without Jesus? Every religion without Jesus is how do you cover up your sins? How do you cover over your failures? It doesn't matter what it is. Well, you make your trips to Hajj, you pray, you give your stuff to whoever, you hope that you'll become a nicer person. But in the end of it all, you're performing and you're performing and you're performing. You are trying to cover it up. Let's face it, there's nowhere like, look, if you went and shot and killed someone and just wiped out an entire shopping mall, went to Westfield and just cleaned house on everyone, but then decided you took all the money you took from all of them and then you gave it to charity, I really don't think that the, the judicial system is going to look and go, oh, well, then I guess that's okay. Because once you've committed a crime, you're a criminal. And unless that time is paid, you remain one. And the difference between Jesus and everything else is what do we try to do with that guilt? We try to cover it up. We're grabbing fig leaves. And it's like, I prayed this many times, and I was kind this many times, and I gave this many times, and this, and and, and all of that. All it is is we're trying to, we just hope if maybe we got enough fig leaves, we could cover this thing up. Jesus looks, and that's all he sees at this tree. There's no promise of fruit when this whole thing is resting on you. Is that where you're at today? Are you at a place today where what you're really just trying to do is trying to make God happy with your performance? Is that really what this is about? Then how are we different from anyone else? 
We're just grabbing leaves. But that's not the way that God intended it, because if that were the case, there would have been no fruit in the first place. But when God made that fruit in the first place, it was something for him and man to enjoy together. To just be together. That was God's intention. What Jesus tells us is that we couldn't cover it up. It had to be dealt with. Because a righteous king punishes all wrong. But he did allow one particular opportunity. And he set it up with the sacrificial system. Because in the sacrificial system, you had to bring a sacrifice that was completely pure, completely perfect, and completely innocent that died on your stead. And you gave that as a sin offering, as a trespass offering. And here's the beauty of it, beloved. When you stood at the door and you went into the temple or prior into the tabernacle, the priest didn't check you out. He didn't look and say, are you perfect? Because he knew you weren't. You can't pick yourself perfect. But you can pick your sacrifice. So in a case like that, you can pick an animal and God's like, look, I don't want your mangy old nasty thing that's about to die anyways. What sacrifice is that? I want the one thing that's actually perfect because you can pick a perfect sacrifice with no blemish, no defect. And here's the beauty. You may not be able to pick yourself perfect, but you can pick a perfect sacrifice. And God set it up that way for Jesus. You see, when I stand before God, God's not going to say, you know, imagine that weird conversation we could sort of rehearse. Why should I let you in? Although I don't believe this conversation will ever have to take place. He already knows. But imagine, I'd be like, well, you know, I prayed. Well, that's your sacrifice. Well, was it perfect? Were your prayers perfect? Were they always with the perfect intention? Were they always right? Were they always selfless? Is that where you're going with it? Well, I gave the charity. Did you always give the charity? Was it always with perfect intent? Was it, would you actually say this sacrifice was perfect? In the end of it all, you realize what you're trying to do is trying to present yourself with just enough fig leaves to cover it. But that doesn't make it perfect. It makes it itchy, but it doesn't make it perfect. I say, I picked Jesus, your own son, God, the son, clothed in flesh, tortured to death, tempted in every way, yet without sin, perfect sacrifice, who I know that God accepted already because he rose him from the dead to prove it. And I can say, this is my sacrifice. And that's the whole point. Understand everything else is about throwing on leaves. And yet what God intended is for us to be sweet. But there's a problem in that because the sweetness doesn't come instantly. And we could want the, you know, we want God's living water to come over us. And we just want God's Holy Spirit. And we want to experience it. We want to, oh, we want that. But just the Holy Spirit without God's truth doesn't allow us to grow roots. And we explode. But on the other side of it, we want God's word so we can know and we can argue and we can, we can take things down and some kind of go, don't mess with me, man. I've got my bandalero of scriptures, you know. Someone's like, well, I think, oh, yeah, well, woo-hoo, first kings, first and revelation, boom. Yeah, how do you like me now? You can see God going, well, that really looks like me, doesn't it? And what you get is you dry up and you become bitter. Because you think you know the truth, but you don't even have the power to live it out. Well, that's a perfect recipe for self-condemnation. But somewhere in it, it will go through trials. It will have seasons of roughness. 
What we don't recognize is those seasons of challenge make the fruit sweet. That's if we want to be. Back in our text, Jesus walks, he sees this thing. It's morning, he returns, he's heading into Jerusalem, he looks and he sees this tree. This tree that has perfect example of what he's about to walk into. And we'll see that next week as he starts to get challenged. And he looks at this thing and there's, no, and there's nothing but fig leaves. And as he looks at the fig leaves, and the notice it says it was by the road, it was wild, it was growing, doesn't seem tended to. And with all of that, he comes and he finds only leaves and he says, all right, you're done. This is never. Why even have this thing here? Because its purpose is to make sweet fruit. Jesus said, by the way, in John 15, as he turns to his disciples only a couple days from now, let's say, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and you be this, and by doing so, you, you're my disciples. Jesus says, actually, in eight verses later, John 15:16, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And you're like, well, I don't feel like I'm producing a tremendous amount of fruit. The question is, the fruit that you are bearing, is it sweet? Because God's not a, he's just, he's not running a corporation here. He's actually leading a family. And I tell you, when it comes time for my children to have children, if they had one sweet child, I will take that over ten nasty children any day. Because what I'd rather have is sweet fruit. He does tell us this, and we're almost done now. In Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. That's one clear thing that I've learned about farming. That doesn't take a brilliant mind to know that. If you plant, you know, if you plant a rose bush, it would be really strange if it started producing jasmine. But in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the hard one, beloved, Jesus will actually reiterate it for what it's worth. It says, you know this, that what you sow does not, is not made alive or produce fruit unless it dies. And there's the hard part. Jesus would actually say that unless that seed dies, it remains alone. And we don't want to die. We're too in love with our seed than, than we are to actually see the fruit that God would want to bear if we really were willing to let God do what he wanted to. One other thing I've learned in Mark, and he's told us this, by the way, in Matthew as well, Matthew 13, that you always bear more fruit than you planted. It isn't like you plant this and you get this. You, get, you plant this and you get a fig tree that produces many of these. So in the simplest sense, this piece of fruit is an orchard in training if it was properly planted. If we had enough vision. It wasn't just like, wow, I really want two figs. If I plant this, I'll look tomorrow, I'll dig it up, and it'll be two figs. It won't be. It'll take time, but in time it'll grow a tree that will produce many figs. And there's a problem is that it takes this kind of time. You know, it tells us, by the way, that he was planted in the house of the Lord 
will flourish in the courts of our God. And it says then that he will actually bear fruit in his old age and be evergreen. That Psalm 92, read it on your own. And if you remember the song we sang evergreen, it's straight out of that text. It's just singing scripture. Because he'll never wither. He doesn't say it'll be the absence of challenge. He just says you'll never wither. We know that from the first psalm about those who don't walk, stand or sit among the, 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 the road, the path, the, the way, the seed of the sinner, scoffer, mocker. He tells us we'll be like trees planted by living water. This is what God intends. And this is not bears forth its fruit in its proper season. You can't make fruit, but you can certainly make yourself fruitless. Jesus says you've got to cling to him to do that, to bear fruit. He tells us that in John 15. We know that. The same way, and pardon me, I don't want to be brash, but the same way that if you actually decided to lock yourself up in a room, no matter how beautiful you are, ladies, lock yourself in a room by yourself for the rest of your life, you're not going to have a baby that way. Fruit takes union. We're trying to do stuff on our own and expect fruit from it. That seems nonsense, doesn't it? So Jesus looks at this tree and he says, look at you're fruitless anyways. Fruit's not going to grow on you anyways. And it shrivels in front of us. And then he looks and his disciples are amazed. And then he says this interesting thing. Right? He's like, well, this, this amazes you? To realize that if you actually had faith and you really, really did believe and you didn't doubt, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would obey you. And my first thought is, uh-oh. What person would you trust with the power to throw mountains into seas? What part of that sounds like a good idea? Oh, this is awesome. Especially because don't, notice he didn't just say any mountain, he said this mountain. What mountain is he talking about? Well, if they're walking into Jerusalem, the mountain's Jerusalem. Why would you want to cast Jerusalem into the sea in the first place? That doesn't make any sense. Except for this. That when God actually spoke about seas, beyond it being, of course, the literal Mediterranean that would just be facing us if we kept going another 30, well, 20 miles, what you would actually find is that God speaks about it in regards to the nations, the, the, the seas of people. We often use that when we refer to the book of Revelation. There's no great mass of people. They're just individuals that God knows by name. And I get that. Because the whole point that God brought us to union is that he wants to bear fruit and he wants to put us in places where we would bear fruit and he wants to cast us to the seas. And this mountain that we're on here at this moment where we sit alone with the Lord, the world needs to know about it. The world needs to know how he saves people and how he sends them so he can, they can be used for other people to be saved. And never anywhere do I ever read that a disciple ever gave it a shot. Jesus is, remember, Jesus takes three guys up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can imagine the other guys getting jealous and going, I'll, tell, I'll just show them. I'll just throw the whole thing in the sea. I mean, imagine what you could have done. But we don't see them ever trying that. So I kind of get the idea there must be more to it than that.
But I get the idea that what would happen if God's people were actually sent out into the world to actually represent? What would happen? What would that be like? Well, if God gave us his heart, I think that one thing we'd hunger for more than anything is the one thing he would see when he saw the fruit instead of the leaf. Just you and God enjoying each other and then inviting other people into the experience. Interesting. Adam would go from the garden to the wilderness. Jesus would go from the wilderness to the garden because his whole point is to take us back. And this is what Jesus can do that no one else can. Unless our sin is properly paid for versus covered, we'll never be able to go and stand before him in the intimacy of a place that God called Eden. Does anyone know what Eden means? We actually get the word hedonistic from it because the world's claimed it because we stopped using it. Hidden means pleasure. But isn't that kind of a weird word? You hear the word pleasure and don't you start thinking, oh, oh, really, am I able to think about that word next to my mom? Or You know what I mean? Because we, the world has so claimed the word pleasure. But interesting, in God's eyes, the idea of pleasure was just, to be honest, a place where Adam and God just walked together without anything to hide. And that was total pleasure. That was the greatest pleasure. David, I think, kind of understood that a bit because he says in Psalm 16, in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's interesting. At your right hand are Edens forevermore. What a wild thought. Now look at this. We go to prayer. I just want to ask you something. This tree that Jesus went by seemed to break his heart. Well, he was just being grumpy or hangry. He was, he was being heartbroken because it reminded him a time when it was so simple and so pure and so right, just Adam and him, before he had to walk through the cool of the garden and Adam was hiding. If you do know Jesus, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, is that where you're at? Because you understand that's what he intended. I've learned if it gets too complicated, too much of man is involved. There's nothing about God that he made complicated for us because he didn't want to make it difficult for us to come. Do you have that relationship with him? Where you wake up and the day is a day for him to, for you to explore God's wonders and partake of these beautiful things that he makes that he's already planned before you got up? Beloved, you're a part of that for me. This morning I woke up, I didn't... Some of you I expected to see, some of you I didn't know. But I'd say this, that in that... I knew they were beautiful things that God was going to bring for me just to enjoy and be reminded of his goodness. What if that was our walk with Christ? Would that not invite other people in? If you have said yes to Jesus, I would like to pray with you and with me too. That we can just get back to that place where it is simple and beautiful and rich. And we can blame it on anyone we want. But haven't we learned in the garden, blame shifting, where I got them? In the end of it all, I wonder what it would have been like if Adam would have been like, you are right, I am wrong, I have blown it. Would you please forgive me? I wonder what God would have done. 
You realize the problem never gets solved when you're busy dishing it off on something else. But today, what if we were to say, you know what, the only thing that's keeping you and me from really being tight is me. Clearly, you're not vacillating in this. But lastly, if you're not sure you've ever said yes to Jesus, I'd love to invite you to that today. I'd love to invite you into a personal and real relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just something where we're going to go and throw more fig leaves on it. Hopefully that'll cover it up. See, the difference is the debt's paid. The price is done. This is how God can remain perfectly righteous and still love you. Still have you because he gave you a choice of what sacrifice you want to make on your behalf. And then he gave you a perfect choice, his son. Why would we choose anything else when the perfect is already before us? The Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, you're handing him, his, handing him your life to give him a chance to make something beautiful with it. Hey, if he could deal with the universe, think about what he could do with you. You're like, God, I may not understand everything, but if I can hand you my life and you're going to make it pure and perfect and right and right with you and beautiful, I'd be a fool to say no. But it says, if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're claiming that sacrifice for yourself. You are praying in faith and you know what God's about to do? He's about to move. He's about to take the mountain of your shame and sin and regret and filth and cast it into the sea. Because there's something else we read he casts into the sea and that is your sin and iniquities cast into the bottom of the ocean, he tells us. And I get it. Because if the one thing that's between me and God is my filth and my shame and my sin, it's no little hill. It is a mountain. And he wants it cast into the sea. But for that, I want to pray. Without doubting and trust, this is really true. How do I know it was enough? Because he came out alive again. And that was the promise he had made since Yom Kippur, when the priest went in and offered the sin sacrifice for others. By the way, Kippur means covering. Did you know that? It literally means the day of covering. And the priest went in, and if it was not accepted, he died in there. That's an occupational hazard. Imagine getting insurance for that. But when he came out, people were holding their breath. They would, they would, they would go potty all over. They would go, they would go really, they'd be very happy. It's a British term. Uh, They'd be so excited, they'd be ecstatic because they realized that God had accepted the sacrifice. And what was he setting up? The idea that if, you went and, if the high priest went and offered the sacrifice and he came out alive again, it was accepted. My high priest, Jesus, went, took it to the grave, and then came out alive again. It was clearly accepted. The question is, well, you, do you want to grab fig leaves or do you want to let God completely wash it clean? Will you pray with me? God in heaven... I want to thank you for the privilege of this text. I want to thank you, Jesus, that, you know, I know that when we get burned, often we write the person off and we just don't even want to think about him anymore. But that doesn't seem to be the way you were or are because we were enemies in our hearts and minds to you, but you still died for us. And it seems like if there's one thing you could have more than anything, it's just back to that place where it was just you and man, you and me, just walking together, you making beautiful things, me discovering them and being in awe of you because of it. God, I just pray 
for all the things I'd want to blame it on for me to not be in that place with you. Truth be told, the only thing I can blame it on is myself. But you so love me, Father, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. So that all of the shame and the sin and all of that, all of it could be just vanquished, washed away. And that my iniquity could be cast into the depth of the sea. Lord, I don't want anything between me and you. Not a pebble, nonetheless a mountain. And I recognize today, I could learn how to play the game and never really be in that place where I need to be with you. But you have a better plan than that. So I pray today, Lord, for every person who has made claim to you, that you get us back to that beautiful, simple place where it was not about numbers, it was about the fact that the fruit was sweet. That place of sweetness. Please. And if there be anyone here who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure you have, I'd like to pray a prayer I ask you to listen. And if at the end you agree, I simply ask for you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. We both know that. And you as the righteous judge punish all sin. But you have given me the choice to choose a sacrifice for that sin And then you sent your son to die for my sins so that I didn't have to openly pay for it. But rather to cast them upon him and be set free. But to do that, I have to put my trust that what he did was really for me. And as he died on that cross, my bill was paid. And as he rose from the grave, he offers me a brand new life. And to that I say, yes, please have me. Please have me. I give myself to you. I ask today, Lord, that you make me new. You wash me clean. And for all the fig leaves and things that I've tried to use to cover up my own failures and faults, change that now. And I just say, Jesus, be my Lord and my Savior. So I give myself to you now in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers. You've heard this. And so my prayer now, Lord, is for these choices we've made, be them for the first time or for the whatever, that you make us sweet. And as you do, change the world by first changing it in us and then using us to change the world around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.